make it understandable, and maybe this morning we too can make peace with something that's been causing adversity or difficulty in our lives, Father. I look forward to it. I'm grateful as always, and we do it all and say it all in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you were here last week, um, Pastor Eric started the chapter 2 study with the verses 1 through 10, and those were really important. So if you weren't here last week, let me just jump back. Because I kind of look at this like we're on a bunch of stepping stones. Where Paul's going to take us on a path and he's going to lead us towards something. And last week when we talked about Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the first part of that, 1 through 3, we talked about what we had been saved from. What we had been saved from. That first initial step, the thing that we want to step onto is this understanding that there was death and this eternal separation from God. And with, the, with Christ's life, what he's... What he's doing is he saved us from that. There's an opportunity to get out from where you are and step into this faith that Christ has for us. And then in verses 4 through 9, we talked about what we've been saved by. Saved by. This idea of unmerited favor. The opportunity that God provides grace for someone who's ultimately an adverse to them. It's nothing that can ever be earned. It's not something that's just been set aside for some. It's set aside for all. And ultimately that led to verse 10, which is what we were saved for. Saved for. We were saved for. Well, there's something that he has for us to accomplish. There's an opportunity for us as we talk about the metaphor of the ship to, to get out of the deck chair and get involved with the actual running of the ship. To perform some kind of task. He says that we're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good work. There's something that we can do. And so with that as kind of the initial first two or three stepping zones, today we're going to step into kind of the thrust of that whole conversation. And so as we read through the passages, Paul's going to establish something with verse 11 when he talks about a therefore. Whenever you hear a therefore in the Bible, always ask what it's there for. It's there for to summarize something. It's the summarization of the previous information. And so when he starts in verse 11, that's what he was summarizing. Saved from, saved by, saved for. Therefore, as we transition to that when you hear the passage starting 11, think about that. What have we been saved for? We're going to be saved for reconciliation. Reconciliation is going to be a primary goal for Paul. He says not just going to be for the Jew and the Gentile, which is the focus of the passage, but all of humanity. This idea that all of humanity was saved for reconciliation. Then when we get to verses 14 and 18, which is where I'm going to pretty much camp most of the time, Saved by peace, through peace, the peace that passes all understanding. That's why Jesus is known as the Prince of Peace. Reconciliation provides this peace so that ultimately in verses 19 to 22, you're going to hear the phrase, His dwelling place, His dwelling place. The Spirit now has a place to dwell. And that's why we always say church is not where God dwells. He dwells within His people. So wherever we go, we are the dwelling place, the cornerstone of life. So turn with me now as we read this passage, and we'll start. Uh, starting in verse 11, it says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision. Remember at the time that you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, 
and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and brought peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father, now by one Spirit. Verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also the members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So with it in mind, what he's going to be talking about, the idea of this transformational relationship between us and God is something, is this greater view. Obviously the passage is focusing on these two people groups, the Jew and the Gentile. But the idea for Paul is that there's a greater overview, and that is that all of humanity is being reconciled in Christ. Christ who is our peace. And he's bringing this reconciliation through the blood, shed blood of Christ. As the Old Testament said, there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And he's using that. He's saying, in Christ now, all things are being complete. And with that, he aims to resurrect this broken relationship, this idea that we're separate from God and have no privilege of life with him, to the, the idea that God has made a way, an inroad for all people to have this. Salvation and peace has now come. Freedom in the name of Christ, the name above all names. The problem was pretty simple, though. The problem was that there was two distinct people groups. And they called themselves the circumcised and the uncircumcised, which is ultimately the Jew and the Gentile. And they weren't just separate from one another, they were miles apart. One group actually considered the other group outsiders, non-elect, disobedient. They called them those who were far away. And that's because they had no hope of a Messiah, as the scripture said. They had no hope. They didn't even have really an actual role in the temple. There was a dividing wall uh, from the court of Gentiles that kept them from the temple, allowing them only to look upon the temple, but not enter in without the repercussion of death. The Gentile had no promised land, and ultimately the Gentile had no covenant with God. And someone that has none of those things, no Messiah, no temple, none of these things, wasn't just cut off to the Jew, was completely separate. Now, the separation between these two groups is not just limited to this idea of religious theology. It was an everyday interaction as well. Now, that's not to say that sometimes they didn't have interaction, but the idea of them willingly or wantingly inviting someone in for lunch or to do life or to have some kind of moment together is absolutely impossible because they live ultimately opposed to each other. You could say it wasn't just a wall. It was a monumental wall between them. That's why verse 14 talked about this idea of this dividing wall of hostility. And when I started to think about walls and how important this is, I started to think about how walls represent things in our life today. And maybe some of you can relate to August 13, 1961, when a 25-mile-long wall was put into the city of Berlin, dividing East and West Berlin. They created a wall that wasn't just massive in size, but it was part of a bigger picture of things, this thing called the Iron Curtain which was built to divide and separate people. They made the walls over 11 feet high with barbed wire, illuminated areas called controlled areas where if you entered into one of these controlled areas, then you could be shot on site with no explanation. They put trenches and guard dogs, had 24-hour watches on it. They did everything they possibly could to separate these two people. And it's documented that over 100 people tried to cross the Berlin Wall and did not make it. Yet one thing I know we all remember more than anything was November 9th, 1989, if you were, you were here that day, we watched on TV when the wall came down 
And just a small segment of the wall came down. Thousands upon thousands of Berliners were trying to get to one another. And yet millions watched on TV as the joy of a wall coming down. We've gotten pretty good at walls. The Chinese actually are one of the most impressive. They built a wall that's so big, you can see it from space. NASA reports that the wall, the Great Wall of China, can be seen from space. It runs over 4,000 miles long, and it was built to protect them from marauding tribes in the north. But even so, the Bible talks about walls. Who can not forget Nehemiah, his great conquest to rebuild this wall, right, for protection. And I don't know about you, but I grew up uh, singing about another wall, um, the walls of Jericho. I mean, you thought about that one? Yeah, the walls came tumbling down, right? So we've kind of made fun of walls. We've kind of been singing about walls. We've known a lot about them. The problem with walls is they still exist today, right? They exist in the phrase, good fences make what? Good neighbors. And so we have this kind of intrinsic desire to kind of build walls. And people are still using that today. And so I kind of think of it like this, whether it's a wall, a barrier, or a fence, it all represents one wall. It's a wall that's designed to do something really simple, to separate and divide people. It's, it's something that's going to create isolation amongst us. That isolation is going to build into things like resentment. And it causes people to have gossip. And ultimately, walls can bring about war. Everywhere you encounter it, one thing is true. Whether it's velvet-covered, whether it represents the haves and the have-nots, maybe the educated and the uneducated. Whatever it ultimately represents, one thing is true. Walls cause problems for people. They never solve them. And so that's what Paul was focusing on when he talked about verse 14. He said, this little five-foot wall is not that big of a deal. It doesn't seem like it. But the wall of the Gentiles literally stopped them from entering into the temple. The idea that the temple was right here, but it was completely out of touch so that they could see it. And he said, this wall wasn't just a wall. It really spoke of a much deeper resentment that was between the two people groups. So much so that the Jews then went on to create laws that stop you from having interactions with Gentiles. If you saw a Gentile woman in labor pains or, or having a difficult time in childbirth and you decided to help her, that would make you ceremonially unclean to enter into the temple. To marry a Gentile was even worse. If you decided to marry a Gentile as a Jew, the Jewish family would then perform a full-blown funeral. And they would say goodbye to you and have complete rights to disown you. The idea that there's a separation between the two is just an understatement. One of the commentators I found said this, and I'm going to paraphrase it. It's a little bit easier. No iron curtain, no race war, no natural, no natural distinction or people group today is more absolute than the pure division between the Jew and the Gentile was in antiquity. They really, they were so far monumentally apart. It was, it was absolutely incredible. It was so bad that ultimately the Jew considered the Gentile one thing. Now, this is a pretty harsh phrase, but this is the way it was. The Jew considered the Gentile cord wood for hell. So I don't know about you, but when you talk about all the different people groups today and all the different hostilities that exist today, maybe we're not aware of just how hostile the arrangement was between the two. And that's why I want to go back to 14 and reread it, because in 14 he focuses in on the idea of unity and peace in Christ. And it's not just a, a wow statement, it's an overwhelming, are you kidding me statement. So let me go back and reread 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made two groups one. Okay, this is our first distinct, absolute reference. That there's no way the Jew and the Gentile who are hearing this cannot understand what he's saying. He's saying this is absolutely going to happen. You two groups are being one. And he identifies it. The, 
Christ came to destroy this barrier, this dividing wall of hostility. He sees that there's clearly hostility between the two of them. He says, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations, his purpose was what? To create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Now this is not just exclusively for the Jew and the Gentile. This is going to be of all humanity, all people, all races. And continuing on there, and in one body to reconcile both of them. As you continue to move through this in verse 19, it concludes, For through him we have both access to the Father by one spirit. So in that single passage, there's four distinct and absolutely clear verses which speak of the humanity, the idea that humanity has been rectified and reconciled in Christ to peace for unity in Christ. And that's what makes it so interesting to me. When I started to think about like 9-11, you guys remember when 9-11 happened? I mean, how quickly does our unity in the world just disappear in a single event? You know, the idea that all of the peace that we had, everything that was commonplace just kind of shuddered. And all of a sudden there was this huge need for additional biases and additional walls to quickly go up. Because the reality is we're much more confident in the handiwork of men, the fences, the barriers, the walls that men make, than we are in the protection that God provides. And that's bothersome for me. I don't understand what it is about humankind that makes us so open to walls. I think it's ultimately because we like labels. We like the idea that we can create these kind of stereotypes and bias, this my world, my view, my individual mentality. That's what ultimately matters. And what happens is it allows people to identify other people groups at appearance level only, and it exempts them from further mental scrutiny, spiritual and emotional prayer. It keeps familiar things familiar, and that's the way we like it. Even though those things are false and bias-based, not true, we still are comfortable with them. And that's why even though it wasn't a, a good thing for the Jew and the Gentile, it simply existed. And they made peace with it. It was though it's status quo. Yet we have to remember that the Prince of Peace came for one thing. He came and requires of us peace. He requires from us to be united, to be one in him. So how do we go about bringing peace to people that hate how do we go about bringing people, uh, peace to people that have such great bias? I, I think there's probably not a more difficult task for us to take on in the church. And I guarantee you some of us have grown up with major biases. Some of us have grown up in situations and scenarios that have created bias. And I'm sure that as we sit here today, there are biases that exist within us. I want you to understand something. For me, I'm also subject to that too. I mean, just because we're pastors and we dedicate our life to the Lord, everyone is subject to some form of bias. And I've experienced bias both in the secular world and within the church. I've experienced it from, from bosses to employees. It's something all of us face, and all of us have to fight through it. Because as soon as we give up the idea that God has brought us here to love people, to care for people, we start to build bridges. It tears, away, it tears apart the idea that we're coming together, that God has something for us. It's interesting that the hatred that the Jew and the Gentile had was, was hundreds of years in development. I mean, this is something that was pretty well established. It's not like you're just going to convince them, hey, you guys should just love each other. Um, why don't we just reason this situation? You guys should be together. You're not together. Uh, why don't you come together on behalf of Christ? It's not going to work like that. And it doesn't work like that in our world. We can't rationalize with the world and say, you should just love. We need to just come together. There should be unity. There's just a problem with unity is that people, are, they want to have what they have, and they want to keep what they have, but separate from us. It's futile, ultimately. Walls become futile. And I found this story that I thought was kind of a perfect illustration of the futileness of a wall. There was this castle on the English coast, 
owned by a landlord, but no one was currently living in it, so vandals were coming in and destroying it. He hired a contractor to build a nice, tall rock wall around it and a gate around the castle to protect, his, to protect it. The fee was agreed upon, and the contractor began his work. In a short time, the contractor had a problem. You see, there were not any rocks nearby to build this great wall. So he called the owner and complained about the situation. The owner sharply replied, I don't care where you get the rocks. I just want you to build the wall and the gate. Some time later, the owner came to see the progress of the work and found this magnificently high wall and gate so tall that he could not see over. The problem was he was so impressed as he went to walk through the wall, he opened the gate to find one simple problem. His amazing rundown castle, which he was so looking forward to protecting, had disappeared. You see, the very rocks of that castle ended up being the wall which he now walked through. And I say to you, this is the folly of a wall. You have to understand something. The very thing that we're trying to protect, God has already said, our greatest asset is other people. And so to try to build off and protect ourselves away, the one thing that he valued and treasured so much, his castle, which was run down and vandalized, now was simply gone. And all he had left of this was wall. And that's what Paul explains. He says, I'm here to bring other people together. Christ has died to bring our peace. He's beaten death. He has torn down this wall of hostility. The idea of division amongst us no longer should be the situation. Instead, Christ is paid it in full, and we need to now live as one body in Christ. You see, you just can't get closer to God without getting closer to His heart. And as you draw closer to God's heart, you're going to inadvertently want to be closer to His people, because that's who His heart is for. The closer we become to others, the closer we become to Christ, the more the walls come down. In the end, what's important to him is that we love others. We do as what the scripture says. We remind ourselves that division is not of Christ. Jesus came to break down walls, and that's why Paul said in Galatians 3.28, There is now neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I rewrote this maybe a little bit more simple, more definite terms. There's no longer any races. There's no longer us or them. There's no longer Americans and foreigners. There's no longer upper and lower class. There is but one and only one race, the human race. And Christ died for that race. And we should make consideration for that. People are people. Good people are good people. People without Christ act appropriately. Folks are folks. God loves them all. Christ died for them all. And we have to get this back into our perspective. We have to change our our outlook from this individual outlook from it's mine and I get to do with it what I want, I get to be who I want to the idea that Christ has an attitude that he's already given us to have and that is we should be known for building bridges, not walls think about that today, how many bridges still exist how many bridges have we knocked down for the sake of building more walls I think we, we live in this wall weary world where we're just kind of tired of seeing them all but we've also just made peace with the fact that they exist and so we don't want to do anything about it but because, because Christ came and died for us, it is a commission on our lives. And so Paul is saying, it's absolutely imperative that the Christian live without this type of bias. Because of this, I wrote down some questions and some things for you to kind of consider uh, for your life groups. Did you understand or even know today that in, in the world that we have today, there's 30,000 different denominations. 30,000 plus different denominations within our faith. How is it that we're saying to the world... 
we are one in Christ and we are unified when we need 30,000 plus ways to say, come join our church and this is the different. It's literally like we, we find joy in creating delineation or separation even within the fold. There was in the 1900s when the, when the century first started, there was only 1,600 denominations. I think that alone is overwhelming and, and too many. But that's to say we started with that and look where we've gone. Every day we're finding new ways to say, come join us to be part of this unique characteristic or specific. Rather than saying, that's the body of God is united. I think when it comes to stereotypes or bias, you see them today. Why are you making peace with them today? Why are you simply like the Jews are saying, that's just the way that it is? Why is it that we are not fighting those things? It doesn't matter whether it's a religious thing or a political thing. Um, the country is now said to be either red or blue. And that's interesting because I know I bleed red, but I watch the Dodgers and I, I watch Dodger blue. So when it comes to red and blue, those are the only conversations you're going to get from me. Because you know what? I have placed my life and my hope in one thing and one thing alone. And that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And good enough to help us. If he could bring the Israelites and the Gentiles together and make them one people, he surely can help you with your greatest foe. Oh, okay. Okay, good. And ultimately, what is it that you can do about something that's so troublesome? I mean, depending on who you are, depending on how the conversation begins, um, even right now, if you get all caught up in the news, all we can talk about is this new fabulous wall that we're going to build. And, and I understand that some people have opinions about it and not about it. My thought is, once again, we used to be a nation that was established, one nation under who? Huh? Under God. I thought that's why we put it on the money, in God we trust, and yet we kind of just embrace these stereotypes, these biases that are kind of part of our society, and say, well, it exists, and so i got to put up with it. It's like, we need to get back on our knees. We need to get back in a position of humility to say to God, you know what, just for the record, we were all foreigners. I don't care where you were born, chances are your, your lineage wasn't born here. All of us come from somewhere. And that's why Paul's saying it's, it's, it's not about races. I don't know why people are so comfortable identifying races. He says there's one race, the human race. And we all run in the same direction. It's either towards God or away from God. There's no middle ground. There's no right or left to run to. You're either running towards God and humbling yourself, or you don't know Him. Why are we so offended by people who don't know God and act like they don't know God? Why is that so offensive to you? Have you thought about that? If I don't know God and I'm acting inappropriately, that shouldn't be offensive. That should be an encouragement to you. There's an opportunity to minister. There's an opportunity to show and share that the wall, the dividing wall of hostility is down. And you too were once a foreigner, but someone shared the love of God with you and brought you in. Right? I mean, to me, it's interesting how people are offended by people who cuss or, or people that smoke or people that do all these different things. It's like, guys, that, those are just distractions. Those are peripheral distractions. The heart of God says, get past it, make sure they know God and they love God and point them in that direction and let the Spirit work on them. Let the Spirit be the guiding light in there. Because that's what Paul's saying. As long as we want to talk about things that divide, there will be an endless supply of division available for us. But if you want to talk about the things that unify us, then talk about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that broke down all the walls and provides an opportunity for us to be a church that's united. And I know there's nothing we can do about all the walls that exist. I know there's nothing we can do about a lot of different problems that are happening in the world today. But I just want to remind the church that the prayer of a righteous person availeth much, right? The prayer of one man stopped the rain and then brought it back.
sometimes we grossly underestimate what our single greatest attribute is. And I'm not trying to tell you to be something you don't want to be. And if you think holding a sign up and jumping up and down and yelling is the most proficient use of your God-given time and talents, and that's between you and the Lord. I'm just saying, you are more proficient on your knees than you will ever be verbally hollering or assaulting anyone. Just show me in the scripture where Jesus did that and we'll have the conversation. Otherwise, I will listen and I will, I will be that person that you need to share with, but you just can't get a response from me because I don't see it. I have been called to model the life that Christ has given and that's what I want to encourage you this morning. And so um, I'm going to call the band up and I hope this is the shortest message I've ever done because I have a lot of stuff going on. And as I call the band up, I wanted to just take a minute and I'm going to drink this because I'm going to need this. So, Okay, so this week, my daughter, Courtney, is... Um, this is down in San Diego, and she has, she's almost 29, 30 weeks pregnant. And um, she was at an air show, and she felt her daughter stop kicking. So Thursday night at about 2.30 in the morning, we asked her to go to the hospital and get it checked out. And it turned out that worst case, she, she lost her daughter Colby. And Friday, we had to go, we were down there all Thursday night and all Friday. To add insult to injury, she had to then deliver the child. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but I've experienced suicide, I've experienced death, I've been in rooms with people passing, I, as a pastor, I've been privileged to experience a lot of different things. Greg's up here, he's a chaplain over at Hogue, and so recently he's talking to me about what it's like with a child. So, I've also recently applied for a chaplaincy over at Costa Mesa Police Department, which I think I'm going to get that job, but it's very interesting. Here's my daughter trying to comfort me, which is not good because my wife is, I'm very connected to my wife. We, for our anniversary is this week, 33 years um, on Thursday. And my wife is empathetical. Her, her gift is empathy. So she's just as much broken as my daughter. So here's my two girls. You know, my, my other one's going to be a nurse. She just signed on at Concordia to be a pediatrics nurse. So she's going to work with children, right? And my whole family is sitting in this room. And I was thinking about one thing. If we, if we are divided as a people group, if we're divided as a family, what do you say in a situation like that? I mean, an insult to injury, right? You, Wednesday, your child stops. Thursday, your child is no longer here. Friday, they induce her, right? Friday, she has to deliver. And then Saturday, they come in and tell her, by the way, because your daughter's almost 30 weeks, you have to now provide a funeral service for her and pay for burial. Our family's been kicked, slapped, beaten, and thrashed. And yet, I can tell you, inside of that room, one thing and one thing alone holds our family together. There's total unity in the Lee family. To, to the degree that my daughter is telling me, hey dad, maybe God can use this so that you can comfort other people. Unity is one of those things. If you don't have unity in your family, if you don't have unity in your church, if you don't value unity, if you don't understand what Paul was saying, it's not about people groups, because right in the same, there is no people group. If you don't understand the value of unity in Christ, that because he died, because he's beaten death, when Saturday, when that social worker came in there and talked about, hey, you guys need to make arrangements, it was like the lowest of the low No one's sleeping, everyone's stressed out to the maximum. And all of a sudden, Courtney starts laughing. And I said, what's so funny, honey? And she said, my best friend was hit by a car the, literally the week I graduated from seminary. So he was the godparent for all my children. We've been best friends for 28 years. She said, I just see Kenny right now fighting with her. Jennifer's dad, Dave, who passed away a few years ago from skin cancer. She goes, I just see Ken and, and Dave fighting right now to hold Colby. 
You know, the first lead grandchild has been born, the first female. I mean, it's going to be our first female. We have a son born, he's three years old. But this first female grandchild has been born, and now the battle for her is in heaven. And it was so, it was so healing for everyone in the room to just kind of think about it. It's like, in Christ, in unity, in peace, we have so much more to look forward to. In Christ, we have this great and wonderful opportunity to realize this is not as good as it gets, guys. In, in this world, you will have trials. You will have tribulations. But take heed. I have overcome it. And so this whole week, as Eric called and as gracious as he is, to say, hey, let me jump in in the message and help you out. I just kept thinking, it was the message that was helping me hang on. It's God's word that helps give me a foothold in this world. It's the fact that I can share with you something that I believe is so important to the church from a difficult place. Now, I usually stand at the door and greet all of you, and I apologize this morning. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't. I couldn't. I can't tell about the story. I'm not ready for it. And my son, he has a different way of processing it. He went down to Long Beach and signed up for a marathon. So my entire family is down in Long Beach watching my son run 26 miles because that's what he needs to process. So I would appreciate if you just keep my daughter and age Courtney in prayer and my wife, Jennifer, because those two in particular are really struggling. But you know what? We're not the only family to have gone through that. The week before, Eric and Anthony, you guys are good friends, Sarah and um, Tara and Steve and Beseda, they lost their daughter. They lost their child as well the week before. So this is something that probably touched a large percentage of you, and now this reaches out into the only area of my life that I didn't have experience in, and I just want you to say, my heart goes out to anyone in this auditorium that has lost a child, or even in the recording as it goes out. If you have suffered great loss, and I pray that you too understand the value of the unity and peace and reconciliation that we have in Christ, because now I know more than ever the reason why I can't wait to go to heaven is just another person there that I so long to spend time with and see, right? But in this world, we got work to do. In this world, we have labor that needs to be done. Today is still going to come and go, and tomorrow there's work that needs to be done. So let us press on. Let us fight the good fight. And let us do it in such a way that if you pray, maybe stay during this prayer time, and you find something that God is just saying, you know what, that is a barrier in your life, and you have got to put that down. I pray that you will just come to value unity. I pray that you will come to see the significance of what Paul shared with us this morning. It's worth it. Not easy, but it's worth it. And I don't know about you, but every year that I spend in life, every time I get a chance to say this, I tell my kids, I don't care how hard or how easy it is, I care that it's worth it, right? And this is something that's worth it. Our faith in Christ is worth the labor. We have a tremendous goal to get to you one day to be with him in heaven. It's an unmerited favor, so just run with that. Mourn with me as I mourn with you, the lost, but just know that God is good and God is faithful. So let me pray, and then um, I'm going to have the band come over. So maybe Eric's going to pray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Yeah, maybe I. Could you, could you just bow your heads? Would you, would you extend a hand? Father, good life in this world is we as a family come around, come around Jeff and Jen, and their daughter, and their son-in-law. And we thank you so much for the hope. We thank you for the gift that she is, even though they will never have an opportunity to hold her living body in their hands and watch her grow. As somebody who's been through a miscarriage twice, I am grateful for the fact that you hold our children and that we can to be part. We have eternity to look forward to worshiping you together, and I'm so grateful for the hope 
bring hope in the midst of the pain. And, and, and turn something that we would call and do call a tragedy, that you would use that and turn that and use that for good. You're the only one who can bring beauty from ashes and life from death. And I pray, Father, that you would use this to advance your kingdom into the hearts of others, that you would that you would put, I just think of the ways that, you, that, I can't even begin to imagine the ways that you would use this, but I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring peace for this family that's hurting. And I'm grateful for the reminder this morning that we're all family. That because of what you did on the cross, Jesus, we are all united, and so we grieve with our family members who are grieving right now. And we rejoice in the reminder that because of the cross, although in this world we do have pain, we can find hope, we can take heart in the fact, Jesus, that you've overcome the world, and even still does not get the last word. Which we glorify in, in our song this morning, as we lift up out of broken hearts and cracked vessels, we lift our voices and worship you. Because this world is fractured. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of divisiveness. And you have called your church that you are building together into a unified body. You are calling us to be a beacon of hope in the midst of the darkness. Would you help us to shine brightly in the midst of our own pain? Following you doesn't protect us from pain. Following you gives us purpose in the midst of that day. It gives us hope to get through today. I just pray for my brother. I pray for my sister. I pray for their kids. That you would give them the hope and the strength to get through today. And I pray for their crazy son who's running a marathon on one week's preparation. Just give them strength, Jesus. In your holy name.